Climate change is a global phenomenon. But we experience it where we live, in our homes and workplaces, streets and parks, and in our bodies, wherever they're found. For 4.2 million people, that's in Montreal. Welcome to Zone Rouge, CJLO's series about the impact of the climate crisis on Montreal. Montreal has made ambitious targets on climate change. And people in Montreal have made headlines around the world by gathering in the hundreds of thousands to demand action on climate change. But the city is going to be changed by the climate, too. Six items are on the banned list. They include plastic bags and some takeout food containers. The Environment Minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, says this is part of an effort to eliminate plastic waste in and Canada. Plastic pollution is such a horrific thing that it's very easy to simply this turn one's consciousness away from it. Even if you're trying to make conscious choices, um, it's really hard because we don't. There, there's not a lot of options uh, for the for the individual, for a community to avoid plastics pollution. Montreal has set a target of becoming zero waste by 2030. This goal will also help Montreal meet its emissions targets, since the production and management of waste produces huge amounts of greenhouse gas. But managing trash is an increasingly complex task. We've learned recycling is broken. So a lot of that stuff that you put in your blue bin ends up in landfills. So we send it overseas, and that's creating a global garbage I guess anything that gets people to think about how much they're throwing away is a good thing. Um, I think a lot of us look at our recycling bins and think we're doing the right thing by recycling, because we've been told that recycling is good for the planet. But I think we've lost sight of the fact that that is also still waste. Honestly, I think the biggest misconception is people don't listen or the, that people don't care. That's absolutely not true. Um, and that gives me a lot of confidence that even though that waste crisis is so massive uh, and the sheer magnitude of it causes a lot of anxiety, it actually is a manageable problem if we're able to work together. This series was recorded on unceded Indigenous land, where the Ganyagahaga Nation is recognized as the custodians of the lands and waters, and in Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. I'm Maura Donovan. Let's get to it. Imagine it's 2050. You're on vacation in Hawaii, taking a break from the rainy Montreal winter with a week in the sun. The beach you're sitting on is a beautiful expanse of clean sand. 
thanks to the work of a diligent team of volunteers who pick piles of trash off the beach every day. As you watch the waves, you absentmindedly dig a hole in the sand and pull out a strange and beautiful rock, bright blue and gray and sparkling. This rock is unusual. It isn't really part of the planet's past, but it may play a significant role in its future. Most important, it's not really a rock. Plastiglomerate is a type of stone uh, that's made from molten plastic debris mixing with uh, natural sediments, so things like sand, uh, shell, wood, uh, things that you would typically find on a beach. Um, and in the process of fusing, it uh, increases density of the plastic and thus in also increases its potential to be buried and enter the future rock record. Uh, some samples look like uh, party confetti has been sprinkled all over them and melted into um, some kind of resin. Um, other ones just look all over gray or kind of a swirl of blue and uh, more beiges like sand color. Kelly Jasvac is a sculptor and an associate professor in the studio arts program at Concordia. Several years ago, she tumbled down a rabbit hole on plastic trash. I was working at uh, Western University at the time, which is a university in London, Ontario. And I attended a session by a plastic pollution activist named Charles Moore. And he um, is really a remarkable person. He travels the world advocating for plastic uh, pollution remediation. He was uh, one of the first people to describe the North Pacific garbage patch. Um, and so I attended the talk and he ended it with images uh, that he had seen on this beach of this, um, essentially a plastic glomerate. Um, and what he was looking for was uh, a geologist to go and study that uh, phenomenon in better detail. Uh, he his theory was that lava from nearby active volcanoes was, was trickling down to the beach and fusing with plastic debris that was washing up from an ocean current from the North Pacific gyre. Um, that turned out very much to not be the case, even though that um, is, a, is quite a spectacular imaginative image. <laughs> After that talk, Jasvac got roped into a field research trip with a geologist from Western. Together, they went to the beach in Hawaii, where Moore had found what Jasvac would come to call plastiglomerates, which we're now imagining you holding in your hand in 2050. As it turns out, they're not formed by lava, but by people having campfires on beaches so polluted that the sand underneath the fire is full of plastic that is melted by the heat. Because they have the potential to be buried, and that was something that uh, was quite evident on the beach, uh, at the back of the beach, when we dig down, dug down into the sand, um, there was a very large uh, uh, chunks of plastic glomerate being buried. Um, so the potential for being buried also increases its potential for preservation. So once buried, it's not subject to uh, UV radiation, for example, or wind, uh, which can break down plastics very easily as it blows around. Um, and so because of that potential for, for preservation, we proposed uh, in a scientific paper that um, a geologist of the future could take a core sample and potentially see plastic representing our time. So what do these plastic shapes on hypothetical beaches have to do with current Montreal? 
Well, they're forged in the present day, including from the trash created by Canadian households. It was extremely intense, I, I mean, on a, on a disaster level to, to see um, a beach that polluted with pollution that wasn't local. So this was, this is plastic debris that's washing up through the ocean currents of the world. Um, the sheer quantity was quite astounding. Um, as an artist, um, my kind of first instinct was to talk to uh, our local hosts, uh, Ron and Noni Sanford, as much as I could. Um, they lived there for a long period of time. They've been beachcombers. Uh, Noni was a sec is a second generation beachcomber. Her dad uh, did a lot of beachcombing and, and she did the same. And so she, within her lifetime, um, witnessed this change between um, you know, beachcombers looking for things like amber chunks washed up on the beach and other more natural phenomenon to her home being absolutely covered in plastic debris. Um, and covered is, uh, I mean that quite literally. <laughs> um, it can be over a meter thick in places. Plastics pollution is such a horrific thing that it's very easy to simply turn turn one's consciousness away from it um, especially even if you're trying to make conscious choices it's really hard <laughs> because we don't there, there's not a lot of options uh, for the for the individual for a community to avoid plastics pollution um, what I hope to happen through putting plastic glomerates in a museum context is because they have this aesthetic quality, there's initial interest of like, oh, what is that, uh, that thing? I'm, I'm intrigued by it. And then, um, you know, kind of once they're pulled in, learning about what that object actually is and what that object uh, means and could act as a symbol for um, becomes a much uh, more expansive conversation. Of course, we don't need to travel as far as Hawaii, or 30 years into the future, or even to a museum, to think about plastic waste. There are many kinds of waste. The air pollution that flows from the tailpipes of our cars and trucks. The noise pollution from trains that keeps us up at night. The untreated wastewater that occasionally flows into waterways, like the St. Lawrence. But it's worth focusing on trash, because it's such a big problem. Take just one aspect of it, in the St. Lawrence, and on a beach a little closer to home. At the artificial beach at Verdun, the plastics problem is less obvious. But Jazzvac has found plastics here too. In this case, the pellets used in plastics manufacturing. I mean, they, they almost look like fish eggs. Uh, they are about three millimeters in diameter. Um, they are, some are a bit more uh, ovoid, some are a bit more circular. I would say a lentil is the best um, visual comparison of just a, something that everyone would recognize. It's about the size and shape of a lentil um, with, with variation and, and uh, color variation as well. These plastic pellets, also known as nurdles, are a common type of plastic pollution on shorelines around the world and have been found in over 50 countries. They often enter waterways by accident, wash down the drain during plastics production or transportation, for example, 
before ending up on beaches like the one at Verdun. And these nurdles are bad news. They can help invasive species hitch rides to new environments, they release pollutants, and they can be eaten by everything from seabirds to squid. Even smaller plastics, in the form of microplastics invisible to the naked eye, are also found in the St. Lawrence, including fibers from clothes and microbeads from toiletries. What is funny is that when you look at the St. Lawrence River from the surface, uh, it's not, you know, a really welcoming water. It's kind of greenish and brownish. And underwater, it's about the same. So the visibility, it's quite narrow. You have, in the base case scenario, maybe six, seven, eight feet of visibility. And the worst case, it's like two or three feet. Uh, However, what is really interesting is not so much what you see, but what you feel. And the, the, the force, the flow of the water, more specifically when you arrive towards the, the rapid, it's so strong and it gives you the feel of what nature is capable of. And in, in the middle of the, of the river, you don't see a lot of trash. And then it's the, the noise and you, you can hear because of the marine traffic. And when you go over, when you dive over the, um, uh, the La Fontaine uh, Tunnel, it's really funny because you can hear the traffic and the ventilation of the, un- of the tunnel under mm-hmm. the river, which is something really odd, really weird. And then you realize, okay, I'm in a, in a body of water that is, that is surrounded by civilization, which is something really special. This is Natalie Vassila an underwater filmmaker and scuba diver based in Montreal who's dived around the world, including a marathon two-day dive in the St. Lawrence. She's found all kinds of trash in the river. But she says what worries her most are the tiny particles and invisible pollutants that end up in the water. And for me, you know, like the big waste, like all the waste we we can take out of the river during cleanup, it's something quite easy to do. Because you see it, you pick it up, and you put it to recycling, reuse, or a proper trash. But all the invisible um, contaminants, how can we get rid of them? But Lassalan does find a lot of large trash, too, and tries to get rid of that with underwater cleanups, which she's been organizing in Montreal for the past three years. This is where I live. This is my backyard. And if I take care of my backyard, Maybe my neighbor's going to do the same. And it's just to give more and more example and inspire people to do something for their, their own uh, living environment. So we started to do one. And, you know, it's like, wow, when we, we saw the amount of trash we were able to remove, uh, then you're like, maybe we can do more. And not in a place we're going to dive but in place where people go and where we, we, we're likely to find more of those trash. So up to now, we removed 10 tons of trash, all kind of trash. It goes from a motorcycle to a can of, of beer or juice um, to all kind of plastic, uh, drones that people lost, uh, bicycles, tires, all kind of things. It's really amazing the, the diversity of 
of trash we can find there. Once pulled out, it's sent to one of six landfills that serve the city, along with the rest of the garbage produced by Montrealers. 465 kilos per year per person on average. Because of that ever-rising tide of garbage, Montreal's landfills are running out of space, including the Terrebonne landfill, which receives almost half of Montreal's garbage and is set to close in less than 10 years. The scale of our waste problems can seem daunting, but it's important to consider how things can change. Consider this park, Park Frederick Back, built on top of 40 million tons of trash. The site started as a limestone quarry in the 19th century and operated as a landfill from 1968 until 2009. The transition to a municipal park has been complex, not least because the ground is shifting as the trash underneath it decomposes. Because of that, the park is dotted with white orbs that conceal wells, and the ground underneath visitors' feet is riddled with pipes, all of which collect biogas generated by rotting trash. The rehabilitation of the site has been a huge undertaking, costing over $27 million and requiring several decades' worth of work. But change doesn't need to happen at that gargantuan scale to be significant. My name is Kirolos Riyad. I am a PhD candidate at Concordia. And now my last year, one would hope, um, of my, my PhD. And um, I've been leading uh, the Waste Not, Want Not Compost Initiative here at Concordia. For the past four years, Riyad has run a composting program at Concordia, with the university providing the bins and collection, and Riyad and her team cornering people who were preparing to throw things out at those bins to educate them on proper compost technique. This isn't the first time the university has tried something like this. So Concordia has tried to improve composting for for a long time before Waste Not. Um, so I think in 2008, I could be wrong about the year, but I think in 2008, Sustainable Concordia, which is a student group um, here on campus, bought an industrial scale composter and they gave it to the university and they literally said, just take this, it's a gift. Please collect organic waste on campus and use it to compost. And so Concordia was actually the first university in Quebec to compost on site. The problem is that there wasn't enough buy-in from the university and it wasn't maintained properly, and so it broke. The university tried again a little while later, but had to abandon the plan a second time when compost bins became too contaminated with other waste. So when Riyad embarked on the third attempt, she wasn't sure it was going to work. I think when we got our first set of data is when I saw that, okay, this is this is making a difference. You know, there's always a lot of skepticism because, and I had a lot of skepticism too, because there are 50,000 people at Concordia. Like, it's not just students that are throwing garbage. It's, it's administrators, it's professors, it's staff. And the I was very skeptical if that would actually make any difference because no matter how many people I talk to, it's a drop in the bucket when it comes to 50,000 people. And And so when we first got our set of data, our first set of data, this is when I was like, okay, it's working. So composting at Concordia, annual composting has actually doubled since we started. So we went from 43 metric tons to about 92 metric tons. And Concordia doesn't have the same kind of contamination issues he had before that forced him to roll back. And so now when they started with about 21 compost bins in the first year of Voice Not, and now it's over 100. But the idea is that it's not us managing the whole thing, but it's really 
uh, a collaboration in the sense that the university has to work on the infrastructure, have to work on the operation, and we work on education. Because if people don't know what goes on a compost bin, um, then it doesn't work. And and an example of that is how the recycling has become so much of a disaster because only 9% of what Canadians put in the recycling bin actually gets recycled because they're so contaminated. This is because when we started recycling, we didn't actually have proper education going alongside it. And I would hate to see it repeated in composting. It isn't just Concordia that's increasing its volume of compost. As part of its zero waste plan, the city of Montreal aims to increase composting to address the fact that more than 50% of the waste currently going to landfills could be composted. This plan includes implementing composting at industrial and work sites and making curbside pickup of compost available to all Montrealers by 2025. And all that is great, but if you don't have education alongside it, it will become just as big of a disaster as cycling is. Waste Not Want Not's example shows the ingredients a composting plan needs to be effective. And maybe just as importantly, it shows that it can be done. Honestly, I think the biggest misconception is people don't listen or the, that people don't care. That's absolutely not true. Um, and and even when it comes to decision makers, I don't think that's true at all. Like It's not been my experience. The biggest lesson learned that I've, that I've taken is that if you help people take that very first small steps of sorting their waste properly, they would take the bigger steps of reducing their waste on their own. Um, and that gives me a lot of confidence that even though that waste crisis is so massive, uh, and the sheer magnitude of it causes a lot of anxiety, it actually is a manageable problem if we're able to work together and if we're able to just stop people, off, take people off autopilot at waste stations and make them just look at what they're holding in their hands. Riyadh says, even at its most effective, composting is never going to be enough. A reduction of waste overall is essential. Some Montrealers are taking this principle even further, and their experience could have lessons for everyone. So one thing I would like to say is, you know, um, the term zero waste, I think, is very is very helpful and um, when you're trying to find alternatives and you're trying to learn more about the topic. But I, I do find that the term is a little misleading and perhaps a little um, off-putting to some people because it's it sounds impossible and it sounds extreme. Um, I can't achieve zero waste as hard as I try. Um, that's why I like to refer to my tiny trash can because... Uh, to me, that's, you know, reducing our trash is something that we can all achieve. It's attainable. If we all did that, we would make a huge difference. My name is Tippy Thole, and I'm the uh, founder, I guess, of Tiny Trash Can. Zero waste is an increasingly common phrase, including in Montreal, since that's the city's target for 2030. This will require every resident to reduce their waste by 15% compared to 2015 levels, or 10 kilograms per person per year. Thole has beat most people to that by a wide margin. I learned about the plastic pollution crisis back in 2017 and uh, was looking for ways that I could make a difference. And I felt like I needed to start with myself. So I decided um, to try to eliminate plastic from my life. And I made it a New Year's resolution on January 1st, 2018 to eliminate plastic and also live as waste-free as possible. And the first time we went uh, zero waste grocery shopping was that first week in January. I believe it was January 4th. Um, and we were so excited to leave the grocery store with no plastic. Um, but that was a learning curve. I, that was the first time I brought containers to a grocery store, you know, and, and setting the tear weight and writing codes down. I mean, it was, 
it was uh, overwhelming, but also really exhilarating. That was one of the first things I did. And then over time, I found all sorts of little shortcuts, basically trying to set up my life to make the, the least wasteful choice the easiest one. Um, and I think that also helps make those habit changes so much easier and, um, and easier to maintain. The fact that the city strategy also emphasizes less wasteful choices, including eliminating plastic water bottles in municipal buildings and regulating the use of single-use plastics, reflects a growing awareness that consumers have been sold a false bill of goods on techniques like recycling. The world is with plastic garbage. In this state, none of this is recyclable. Have efforts to solve the plastics problem. A PBS investigation from 2020 revealed that the plastics industry publicly promoted recycling as a solution in order to fend off growing concerns about plastic waste. Do you think the industry used recycling to sell more plastic? Absolutely. Even as they knew it wasn't economically feasible to recycle most plastics. It's estimated only about 10% of plastics ever produced have been recycled. And closer to home, facing a growing pile of material that couldn't be recycled, the Quebec government expanded a concept known as extended producer responsibility last year, so that producers of plastic and paper containers and packaging will be responsible for the product's full life cycle, including recycling, incentivizing companies to incorporate more recycled material into their goods and produce less waste. But Thole says citizens have a role to play too, including in thinking about what steps they can take. I think a lot of us look at our recycling bins and think we're doing the right thing by recycling because we've been told that recycling is good for the planet, but I think we've lost sight of the fact that that is also still waste. And I've reduced my recycling quite a bit. I'm down to two curbside bins a year for my family of two. And that's because I've eliminated plastic and plastic was a huge part of what I was recycling. So now what's in my recycling bin is predominantly um, paper, glass, and cardboard. So, um, you know, I hope just by raising consciousness that um, it makes other people start to question, um, you know, how can I reduce waste in my own life. And I do think that while we wait for, you know, governments and companies to start to take an active role in um, reducing waste, that we as citizens can do so much. And I don't think that, you know, just companies or governments um, regulating things and making laws is going to make a difference. It has to happen both from the bottom up and also from the top down if we want to tackle this problem in, a, in the time frame required. In other words, not everything, or even most things, we throw away can be recycled or composted. And not every landfill can be turned into a park. Instead, we have to cut down on what we consume and throw away to begin with. And leave the people of the future something more than strange plastic rocks in the sand to remember us by. Montreal's strategy to reduce waste also targets the food we throw away. The plan will eventually ban stores and large institutions like schools and hospitals from throwing food away, requiring them to donate it instead. One determined woman isn't waiting for that to happen. 
Donc ici à la Maison de l'Amitié, c'est le lieu qui nous héberge depuis quatre ans. Depuis, on a créé d'autres kiosques de distribution. This is Atlantide des Rochers, speaking at the Maison de l'Amitié in the Plateau. Mais ici, depuis quatre ans, on distribue de la nourriture aux gens du quartier et de façon plus vaste des quartiers aux alentours. Donc ici, c'est une distribution alimentaire qui euh, ne contient que des invendus. Donc de la nourriture qui n'a pas été vendue dans les magasins. Avant que je la récupère, elle était jetée. La nourriture non vendue dans les magasins est systématiquement jetée s'il n'y a pas de partenariat, d'où toutes, toutes les démarches que j'ai euh, commencées. Food waste food insecurity, and the rediscovery of an old model for agriculture. That's next time on Zone Rouge. This episode was produced by me, Maura Donovan, with production help from Zoe Bailey Stetson. Until next time.